Father in heaven, we're grateful for the Sabbath, for these sacred hours when we can spend time just thinking about you and your will and your word. But Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would please meet with us just now. Speak to our hearts. Do more than a superficial work on our hearts, Lord, but reach deep and help bring the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the encouragement of heaven to each one of us. We thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Now, <clears throat> I kind of want to open this up by looking at our Bibles. Do you have your Bibles? I hope you have your Bibles, at least on your phone, because we're going to be looking in the Bible. Every one of these sessions, I'm going to be looking in the Bible. I didn't put a lot of texts on my PowerPoints. I put a lot of quotes, Ellen White quotes, but not a lot of Bible verses because I want to look at the Bible. There's some that I'll just uh, reference. But this first one is in John 17. John 17, verses 14 and on. John 17, beginning with verse 14. Have you found John 17? 14. All right. Well, four of you is all I need, so we're going to get started. I have given them... Your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, first of all, notice what it says I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. So, we're going to talk about that later, but keep in mind that to actually accept the word will have some repercussions as it pertains to the culture and to the world. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the Holy One. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Here is Jesus' prescription for unity. And he clearly says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What's the word sanctify mean? To make holy or to set apart. In the context... He's talking about being different from the world. So he's saying, set them apart from the world by your truth. And then he says, your word is truth. So truth is found in the word. And unity, where he goes right after that, is all based on the truth. If you don't have the truth, you don't have genuine unity. Now let's go to another verse, John chapter 16. John chapter 16, since we're right there in John. And let's look together at verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into what? All truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. So the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. How does the Holy Spirit guide us into truth? Well, you know from Ephesians 6, verse 17, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. What's a sword? That's a weapon, right? Okay, the weapon of the Holy Spirit is the Word. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when you open the Bible to read, you aren't really the one holding it. Like the whole concept of you opening the Bible to read the Bible is that you are placing this power and authority in the hands of the Holy Spirit so He can do something to you, so He can reach you, so He can change you, so He can bless you and create new things in you. So the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to reveal truth. Here's where the whole issue of the church uh, is settled. Everything that we're dealing with right now in the church and that we will deal with all the way to the end of, the end of time is all based on whether we will be united on the truth of the Word. But we're not. And somebody might be asking the question, 
If the scholars can't figure it out, what hope is there for me? Because I was there with dear brother McIntosh, listening to paper after paper being presented at the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. One scholar to another scholar. And they were saying quite different things. So it causes many of our lay people. I know I had one lay person in particular back when I was pastoring a local church who used to say that to me. Pastor, if the scholars, if, if, if you guys can't figure it out, what hope is there for us? Well, I want to encourage you tonight. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Let's look there in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are what? Spiritually discerned. Let me be clear. An honest heart, a genuine spiritual life, a genuine relationship with God is the most important ingredient to understanding the Bible. Did you follow what I said? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and being spiritual is not based on intelligence or scholarship even. So right at the start here, we need to remember that the Bible tells us that spiritual things can only come from the Spirit of God. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4, is one that we're going to turn to as well. I'm not going to look at each one here, but I'm going to look at this one. 2 Timothy, of course, you go to Hebrews, and just before that are the T-books, right? Thessalonians, the Timothys, and Titus. We're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 3, where it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The last days are characterized by those who will have itching ears and who will not, what's that word? Endure the truth. Hold on to that. We're going to talk about that again tomorrow. But the idea here is that they will not they cannot handle, they will not endure what the truth says. And because of that, they turn their ears away from it by finding many teachers who will misinterpret the Bible. By actually hiring, sustaining, supporting, encouraging teachers who will misinterpret the Bible. Isn't that what the text says? They will heap up for themselves teachers because of itching ears, because they will not endure the truth. This is a characteristic of the last days. Ellen White says in The Great Controversy, page 599, If men would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. If there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, you know what? The fact that I'm giving this series over this weekend is in some ways kind of sad. Because let me tell you something. My parents were Seventh-day Adventists until I was nine, almost ten years old. And they left the church. They got out of here. There's a guy by the name of Desmond Ford. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him. He was teaching some things that uh, were pretty opposite to what Seventh-day Adventists believe in our distinctive teachings. And my father uh, kind of got caught up in it. He was always a bit of an independent thinking guy anyway. But he kind of got caught up in it, and maybe Dr. Ford wouldn't have intended this, but he just kind of thought, well, you know what, I don't need to go to church. My understanding of righteousness by faith is that I'm saved anyway. And so when we moved from Ohio to Missouri... And, and my parents, I think they went to church one time, and they said, you know what, I don't need to do this, and he stopped. And we never, after that, went to church. And I grew up in a totally secular home, totally secular. Secular, and then some, because my parents threw away all their little red books. For those of you who are younger, the red books is how they used to bind the Ellen White books. 
They threw away all the little red books and planted in our hearts a bit of a skepticism and negativity toward Seventh-day Adventism and anything distinctly Seventh-day Adventist. We grew up without talking about God or anything like that, but because I had gone to church till I was nine years old, I still said that I was a Christian, like if somebody were to ask me. I didn't know a thing about what the Bible said, but I would say that I was a Christian. If they asked me what, like what I was, I would say Methodist. I never s- sat foot or you know, walked into a Methodist church. I, I have no idea what one would have been like, but I kind of thought that was your average Christian. And I didn't want to be anything close to a Seventh-day Adventist. Be clear about that. So I got a little older, went to the University of Missouri for a couple years, and uh, then I had some things happen. Some really bad stuff happened. Uh, Physically, I had a couple knee surgeries, a tonsillectomy, all in the same semester. I could not work. I was owed back rent to a friend because I was living in this house, this party house with four other guys, and it was not good. My GPA was not looking pretty, and I just knew that this was not going to go well for me. My mother finally talked me into moving back home to Ohio and going to the university there because I could transfer my credits, but my GPA would start over. (sighs) It was so hard for me because the guys I lived with were like brothers to me, and I didn't want to leave them. But I did. In tears, I left. And, uh, but it put me in an environment where I was thinking for myself a little bit more, and I began to have some curiosity. And I always claimed to be a Christian and was a little bit worried that I would get embarrassed if somebody actually asked me something, because I didn't know a thing that was in the Bible. Like, the only thing I remember from when I was younger and in church, three things I remembered. One, I remember singing around the campfire at Vespers because we had this lady, her name was Pat White, she played guitar and sang Vespers. I remember that. Two, I remembered my Bible. It was a good news Bible with a yellow cover. And on the inside, uh, in, uh, it had those little sketches. The little stick men sketches, you remember. And I remember the one from Lazarus, Come Forth. I, I just remembered that. That was the second thing I remembered. And the third thing was that I had a Sabbath school teacher who had a seizure right in front of me. And I remembered that. And that's basically all I remembered. So I was worried that if someone were to ask me, I wouldn't know a thing about the Bible. So out of curiosity, in my parents' basement when I was living there and attending Ohio State, I decided to read my Bible. Just read it a little bit. Three weeks later, my life was turned upside down. And I was converted. The Lord Jesus revealed himself to me. Eternal realities were made clear to me. I walked up to my father's room and I said, Dad, if this is all true, what are we all doing here? Like, if this is all true, everybody's going around, nobody's talking about it. I mean, this, if this is real... Why is nobody talking about it? I mean, the Lord spoke to me through His Word. Now, I believe in public evangelistic meetings. I've been an evangelistic, you know, evangelism coordinator. I believe in giving Bible studies. I'll talk to you about that tomorrow. And Bible work. I've been a personal ministries director and am currently doing that as an associate director at the General Conference. But in that stage of my life, It was just me and my Bible. That was it. And the Lord changed my life. And you know what? I didn't need anyone else to come and explain it to me. I didn't need a scholar to come break it down for me. I took the Bible as it reads. And since there was no false teacher around to mislead and confuse my mind, things went well for me. And the Lord Jesus revealed himself to my heart. This is the power of the Bible. This is the way it should be. And anyone with an honest heart has accomplished the very first and most important task to understanding the Bible. And I'll 
have more to say about this. This verse I'm not even going to turn to because I think you know it. John 7, 17. Jesus says, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. So if anyone is willing to obey the truth, what this is saying is, if you're willing to obey the truth as it's revealed, you'll know the truth. And that's exactly what John 8.32 says, right? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make or set you free. I've always loved this, because, you know, in the world today, and even in Christianity, there's so many people who question whether you can really know the truth. You know? We're in the middle of this big, you know, question over women's ordination in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And people are, they are tempted to believe that we just can't know. Because after all, Theology of Ordination Study Committee got together, all the scholars got together, and at the end there was no consensus. So I guess if they can't figure it out, how could I possibly figure it out? But Jesus says, you shall know the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I think that we can know the truth. I'm, I'm one who believes that we can. I'm not saying I have all the truth, but I believe that we can know the truth, and that we shall know the truth. This is one of my favorites, so I'm going to ask you to turn to this one. Psalm 119, verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130. Now pay close attention to this, because I'm going to read it, and my translation might be different from yours. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to really smart people. What does yours say? To the simple, the, the entrance of your word gives what? Light. What's light mean? That means you, you once were blind, but now you see, right? I mean, it's, it's like what I experienced reading the Bible downstairs in my parents' basement. I, I was totally unaware of these realities, and now I saw them clearly. It's clarity that the Bible will give. And it says, it gives understanding to the simple. Understanding, understanding the true meaning of the text, of the Bible text, is the purpose of whatever principles of interpretation that we use, which we're going to talk about this weekend. And this verse says that even the simple can understand the meaning of the Bible. That's what it says. Do you know why that is? It's because God himself takes responsibility. He promises it, and if we come with an open heart, he will lead us in a right direction. This is why also, you know, I get some people who don't feel like they have good recall. Anybody here? <laughs> You're not going to raise your hand. Not have good recall? Can't remember, can't remember right? <laughs> yeah, he can't remember if he has good recall or not. Well, <laughs> the idea is that we think, well... You know, when I get put into a certain situation, you know, how am I going to be able to answer how, or, or what have you? And how am I going to be able to avoid the incredible deceptions? Because sometimes when we talk about deception at the end, we really ramp it up. Because, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. If it, you know, uh, even the elect would be deceived by the deceptions that are going to be so great, if it were possible. So we, we hear that and we think, oh... You know, I just, I don't know how I'm going to not fall for it. Let me tell you something. It does not have so much to do about your intellect or memory. It has to do with the state of your heart. And when the truth is revealed, or when error is revealed, there's a certain ring that you will sense. The Spirit of God will guide you. He will lead you. And so, if error is presented, there's something that won't seem quite right. Because error simply, it runs contrary to everything that you know from your genuine experience that you have with Christ. 
So ultimately, the simple, according to the Bible, are going to be okay if they have honest hearts. Now let me show you a few passages that will blow you away. Councils on Sabbath school work. I start there. Page 23. The Bible was written for the common people as well as for scholars and is within the comprehension of all. The way is not left in uncertainty as though we were standing where four roads met, not knowing which one to take. Right? We're not, that's not where we are right now in the church, standing and not knowing which one to take. No. According to this, the Bible was written, and whether common or scholar, you can figure it out. Child Guidance, page 513. The book, the Bible it's referring to, was not designed for scholars alone. It was written in a plain, simple style to meet the understanding of the common people. In fact, when Jesus taught, Ellen White even says that Jesus, when Jesus taught, people didn't need a dictionary. She actually says that. It was profound enough for the highest intellect, and it was simple enough for those who didn't have any education or previous background. This is my favorite. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 331. The Bible, with its precious gems of truth, was not written for the scholar alone. What's those next three words? On the contrary. Now, I love it when you see something like that. It, it tells you. This is actually the flip of that. It was designed for the common people. And the interpretation given by the common people, when aided by the Holy Spirit, accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. The great truths necessary for salvation are made clear as the noonday, and none will mistake and lose their way except those who follow their own judgment instead of the plainly revealed will of God. So, I'm going to get back up here a second. Check that out. It was actually designed for the common people, and the interpretation of the common people is the best interpretation. Am I reading that right? The interpretation given by the common people, when aided by the Holy Spirit, accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. That's powerful. Now, let me tell you something. This is, you know, a little bit of a, challenging area to dive into because I don't want people to misunderstand. <clears throat> I have some good friends who have wonderful scholarship and their, you know, brains are twice my size. And uh, as much as I have tried by osmosis to learn from them, it hasn't worked. And there is great, significant contribution that is made by scholars who dig into the depths and who have a mastery of the original languages and who understand with greater detail the nuances of the scriptural text. Having said that, there is a danger in scholarship, and I'm going to tell you what it is. The danger in scholarship, the risk... In scholarship, in scholarship is that there is less accountability. Let me explain what that means. If I stand up here and I quote from Psalm 119, 130, and I say something different from what the Bible says, I got all you on my back. Right? And you're going, uh, no preacher. Right? But if I stand up here and say to you, but what you need to understand is that in the Hebrew, this means this, this, and this, you're like, oh, really? Okay. Right? You just drastically reduced the pool of people who can hold you accountable. Do you understand that? And if you've ever listened to these scholars you'll discover that they don't agree. Like, they don't, I'm not saying they, don't, they all disagree, okay? But I'm saying just like, you know, we might disagree on things in the 
text as it is in the language that we speak, the scholars who speak with authority about these different areas, they don't necessarily see those things exactly the same either. So for us to put total confidence there, I'm not saying we shouldn't be benefited by it, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to learn by it, but to put total confidence there is, is risky. And that's why I believe that Ellen White says that the truth as understood and interpreted by the common people when aided by the Holy Spirit accords best because there's a broader base of accountability for understanding the truth. And what can happen is, if this thing breaks down and people start saying, oh, you know, the only people who really are seeing this properly are the scholars. They all are in agreement over here, but the common people need edumacated. Then there's a huge uh, accountability problem, and we place ourselves at great risk as a church. And I've, I could speak for a while about this, but let me just suffice it to say, we need to remember that there is a principle that was given to us, passed down to us from the Protestant Reformation. Okay? It's the priesthood of all believers. You know it from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And let me tell you that there was a problem in the papal system. In the papal system, only the clergy could rightly understand, interpret, and express the truths of the Bible. That was their understanding. And so the common people, they were made to feel that they couldn't know. And they had to lean on the priests. Where did that get them? It didn't go well for them, and the Bible was not even in their commonly understood language. Then came the Protestant Reformation, the printing press, and the translations of the Bible into common languages. And when that happened, it fueled the Protestant Reformation. Why? Because suddenly they were like, what? What have you been telling us? That's not what it says. The papal system taught that only the clergy could rightly interpret and instruct the scriptures, but the Protestant Reformation taught that every member of the church can commune with God and discover the truth through the Bible. This is our heritage. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we need to never fall prey to the idea that we are totally reliant or that we should place greater weight upon scholars' understandings. We should learn from scholars, but we should not put some sort of inherent trust in scholars, but trust the Word and put our emphasis on trying to understand the Word for ourselves because the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The key to accurately interpreting the Bible is to believe it is the ultimate authority in determining what is truth. That's the key. I'm telling you right now, on night number one, this is the only night, right? Yeah. Night one and the only night. I'm an evangelist. I'm used to pre <laughs> series of meetings. The ultimate authority must be the Bible, and that is the key to interp accurately interpreting the Bible. And in order for the Bible to be fully authoritative, it must be understood to be fully what? Inspired, meaning not corrupted by any false human ideas. So let's talk about this idea of the Bible being fully inspired for just a little bit. Mark chapter 1. Take your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 1 and verse 22. Mark 1 and verse 22. Notice what they said about Jesus. I'll start in verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished.
astonished at his teaching, for he taught them how? As one having authority, and not as the scholars. <laughs> That's right. Not as the scribes. They were the scholars of the day. Notice what Ellen White says about this in Desire of Ages. This is page 253. While his teaching was simple, he spoke as one having authority. This characteristic set his teaching in contrast with that of all others. The rabbis spoke with doubt and hesitancy, as if the scriptures might be interpreted to mean one thing or exactly the opposite. The hearers were daily involved in greater uncertainty. But Jesus taught the scriptures as of what? Unquestionable authority. And it was the fact that Jesus taught that the scriptures were unquestionably authoritative that astonished the people. Do you know why it astonished them? Let me tell you. There is something powerful about being convinced of something, about having security in something. And as long as there's questions and doubts, it ruins everything. You want to know why we are struggling in the North American division and in many places around the world with evangelism? It's because we do not have confidence in the Bible. We do not have confidence in the Seventh-day Adventist message. Oh, they say, that method doesn't work anymore. Public evangelism doesn't work anymore. That's code word for we don't believe the things that we teach in public evangelism anymore. What's happening is people have lost confidence in the Bible. Seventh-day Adventist church members wonder how to answer questions about distinctive teachings of the church, such as the investigative judgment, such as distinctive lifestyle teachings. They really have questions. Does the Bible really say that? Do we only get that from Ellen White? And because so many are infusing doubt instead of confidence in the Scripture, people are losing their inspiration to evangelize. You will not try to evangelize if you do not feel convinced and passionate about what you believe. And this is exactly what's happening in the church. If you wrestle with doubts about the Bible, doubts about the Seventh-day Adventist message, settle that thing. One of the best things I did in my early experience was go through this back and forth, you know, wrestling. As I was hearing all these different ideas or whatever and having to look in the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy for myself and having to at sometimes question my whole life and everything that I had done and then having to dig back in and wrestle again. You need to know. I love there's a statement I've recently read, uh, Councils on Sabbath School Work Again. And you ought to read it. It's not just for Sabbath school people. Like, let me say that differently. It's not just for Sabbath school leaders because you're all Sabbath school people. You would be blessed by reading councils on Sabbath school work. It will blow your mind, the things that you read in there, about what that work is and about just the whole concept of the transforming power that is inherent in it. But there's a statement in there where Ellen White says that both students, or I'm sorry, teachers and pupils should know that they know what is truth. Don't you like that? It, she doesn't say both teachers and pupils should know the truth. She says they should know that they know what is truth. You see, there's a confidence. There's a, a persuasion that the Bible gives. You know, yeah, there was a period where I had to wrestle. Is Elamite really a prophet? What about these plagiarism charges? And I had to wrestle over it, and I had to figure it out. But once I figured it out, I was like, yeah! You know, once you are convinced of something, you're going to do something with it. And that's the power of the Bible. That's why the people were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. Because he spoke as if the Bible was true. It had authority. There was no question. And the people gained persuasion. They were gripped. 
They were influenced by that. What about today? What about today? Selected Messages, Book 1, page 15 says, Many, very many, are questioning the verity and truth of the Scriptures. Human reasoning and the imaginings of the human heart are undermining the inspiration of the Word of God, and that which should be received as granted is surrounded with a cloud of mysticism. Nothing stands out in clear and distinct lines upon rock bottom. This is one of the marked signs of the last days. This confusion, this no clarity, you know, one of the things you do if you want to um, confuse people is just throw a bunch of stuff at them. And sometimes I've seen that happen in the church. Just throw enough questions from all different angles and people are like, oh, never mind, I, I can't understand it. And in the last days, the devil's going to throw everything at you. He's going to try to confuse you, make you think you can't understand. But, as it said, if you would simply receive it as granted, if you would study the Bible as it reads and use basic principles of understanding the Bible, you don't have to be confused, though there's a thousand people around you saying strange and different things. This is the power of the Bible. Jesus taught that the scriptures were authoritative. Now, let me tell you exactly how strongly he taught this. This would just take a minute. Um, but I want to turn with you to a couple of places. This, let's start in Luke 24. And uh, Luke chapter 24 is the last chapter in the book of Luke. And, of course, it's the first book written by Luke. The second book is the book of Acts. And uh, it's somewhat of a sequel, if you will. And in Luke 24, you see the final events that are captured here before Jesus ascends to heaven. And so it's after his resurrection. He knows he's going back to heaven, so he has to do something to keep his disciples encouraged and make sure that they're going to be able to hang on after he's gone. So this is what he does. Luke 24, look first with me at uh, verse 27. Jesus is on, or, or runs into a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, and they uh, are all discouraged, and they're talking about all of the events that happened since Jesus of Nazareth died, etc. And Jesus is unknown to them, and he asks them, you know, what is this that you're talking about while you're walking along and are sad? One of the things I love about Jesus is <laughs> he asks a lot of questions he knows the answers to. <laughs> Sometimes he does that with me, too. He wants us to acknowledge things, to express things. And so they begin to say, well, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Jesus, this... You know, Jesus of Nazareth, mighty in word and deed, etc. We thought it was, he was the Messiah, the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then Jesus says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now at this time, he's speaking about the Christ in the third person. Like they still don't know it's him. Right? So... If I'm Jesus, I'm like, check it out. Whew, some sort of glory, you know, brilliant display. Say, it's me. He didn't do that. It says in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when Jesus wanted to secure them, he pointed them directly to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy in his life. Which, by the way, if I had time, I would do a totally different sermon on the power of prophecy. Because the Seventh-day Adventist Church, our message is Christ in prophecy. That is our message. Christ in the context of prophecy. And you'll notice that Jesus, and, and you can read this in Desire of Ages, that when Jesus taught the gospel, he based the gospel on the prophecies, she says. And when 
the apostles taught, they taught about Christ through prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy. And even when Paul determined among the Corinthians not to know anything but Christ and Him crucified, he walked them through the lineage of Christ, showed how His life, death, and resurrection fulfilled the prophecies, and that's how He taught them Christ. So we need to understand that prophecy has power, and there's a reason for that. It's because the prophetic word is like nothing else. And when you see that God, who knows the end from the beginning, predicted something, and it was perfectly fulfilled, you begin to believe that heaven is real. God is real. The Bible is real. And you have a face-to-face -face encounter with Christ. No, not with Jesus of Nazareth, the baby in the manger, but with the divine Christ, who knows every secret of your soul. That's what happens when you teach prophecy. That's the beauty of our message, is it has power, Ellen White says, to stir the people. Because it's put into a prophetic context that is supernatural. When you walk someone through these incredible prophecies and show how history perfectly fulfilled them and they've never seen it before, it has an incredible power. I remember preaching in an evangelistic meeting and there was a guy sitting in the third row with three other people, his wife and a couple of uh, what appeared to be relatives. Every night he came out to the evangelistic meeting, but I didn't know, you know much about him because he wouldn't talk. You know, I'd go and go to shake hands in the back as everybody left, and he would give me one of those cool handshakes and move on. I never, never said anything. He was just always Mr. Cool. And then this guy comes up to me one night, and I had, happened to have a former member, okay? I had just been pastoring this church for maybe a year or so, and this former member was never a member when I was there, but I had learned from some of the other members, and I had visited him once. But he, because of some personal conflict things in the church, he had stopped coming to our church. But he came to the evangelistic meeting because he still believed in Adventism. So he comes to the evangelistic meeting, and after one night after Mr. Cool comes by, shakes my hand, walks by, he comes by right behind this former member. He shakes my hand, and he says, Hey, that guy, you just shook his hand, that's my pastor. I said, No, he's not. I'm your pastor. <laughs> Come back to church. No, I didn't say that. But he did come back, by the way, after the meetings. But I knew now that this guy was a pastor, right? So I, I explained his coolness. You know, he was checking things out. But he was there every night. Same spot, every night. Same cool handshake. We were moving along in the series, and uh, one night, it was a Friday night, I preached on the topic of Babylon. And I showed in the Bible that in prophecy, you know, they already had learned this, a woman symbolizes a church. And this woman was a harlot woman, which would make it an unfaithful church. And I walked through the characteristics, you know, the blood of the saints, etc., and showed that this was another symbolic representation of the medieval church, the papal power. And then I showed how this harlot was a mother of other harlots. And if a woman represents a church, then these daughters would represent churches that were also holding to tradition instead of the Word of God. And I talked about how the Protestant churches from the papal period as they branched out, there were some wonderful uh, reforms that were made, but they still held on to, you know, the even though they didn't believe in praying to saints, per se, they still held on to the idea of the immortality of the soul. Even though they didn't believe in purgatory or whatever, they still believed in the eternal conscious torment. Even though they didn't believe in you know, or, or they believed in the Bible as the authority, they still held on to Sunday as being sacred. And so I showed how this is the fulfillment of, it has to be, of this, this mother church who has all these daughters. What other time in history do you see a church have daughters and they also continue in unfaithfulness to the Word of God? And then I said the words of Scripture that the Bible says, come out of her, 
my people. God has his people in all these churches, but he's calling them out. And notice he does not say, you know, that Babylon will be transformed. He says, come out of her. So I preached this message, right? Made an appeal. Walked back to the back to shake hands. Here comes Mr. Cool. Shake my hand. I put out my hand to shake his hand, and instead of shaking it, he opened up his arms, and he gave me this big hug. And he whispered in my ear, and he said, I'll see you in the morning. This was on a Friday night. So then he walks out, tells me this later, with his wife. They walk out quietly to the car. They get in the car. He turns to her, and he says, you know what we have to do. And she says, yeah, I know. And then as she explains it, she got kind of sick to her stomach. Because, <laughs> of course, she had a congregation, about 30 people. They're a small, non-denominational church in Alpena, Michigan. And she ministered to that congregation. But they knew that they had heard the truth. You see, when prophecy, the power of the prophetic scriptures comes blazing home that this can be nothing but what this clear picture is, it has the power to change people and to make them do things, radically change their lives. That power of our prophetic message, we can never let go of. In fact, I'm, I'm getting on a tangent here, but let me. So, Ellen White refers to the Sabbath. There was a situation in, in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, where there was this guy that was kind of getting off the rails a little bit, and she says, hey, this Elder K, he has a problem. He's, he's, you know, gathering up with the dragon host and those who war against the commandments of God. And then she says, as it pertains to the Sabbath, he holds the same position as the Seventh-day Baptists. And I remember reading that and thinking, well... Why are you saying he's warring against the commandments of God if he holds the same? I mean, don't we hold the same position? If there's one thing we hold the same as Seventh-day Baptists, it's the Sabbath. So I'm reading this and thinking, why is she, you know, coming down hard on the guy for holding the same position as the Seventh-day Baptists on the Sabbath? Then she continues and she says, separate the Sabbath from the messages, the three angels' messages, and it loses its power. Yeah, think about that. And have you ever thought about it? The Seventh-day Baptist Church in the mid-1800s was about the same as we were back then, about 3,500-ish members. Today, they have about 50,000. We have over 20 million. If you want to do the math, that's about 400 times the size. Now, there may be other factors, but I know one factor. You separate the Sabbath from its prophetic context, and it loses its power. You separate the Sabbath from the fact that it's an end-time test for humanity. You separate the Sabbath from the change of the Sabbath through history and the fact that it will be brought out again. You separate it from all of that, and it loses its power. There is power in the prophetic word. And, and Jesus pointed to it with, as having unquestionable authority. That's why on the road to Emmaus he did just that. But I'm not done with Luke 24. Go back to Luke 24 for a second. Verse 44, to his disciples now, not on the road to Emmaus, but now to his disciples. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So again, now to his, not the, the two on the road to Emmaus, but to, his, to the twelve, to the disciples, he explains to them once more that the scriptures must be fulfilled. He's helping them to have confidence in the scriptures that basically everything that happened in his life was a fulfillment of Scripture. And he goes on in verse 46 and says this. Well, first notice verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. That's what he does for us too. Then verse 46. Then he said to them, this is powerful, this is full, so you need to pay attention. Thus it is written, he told them, and thus it was necessary. I want to pause before I keep reading. Thus it is written, okay, so something is written in the Bible, and because it's in the Bible, that's what makes it necessary. Do you understand the, the, the way he's going so far? 
Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Jesus could have given lots of reasons before he went back to heaven as to why he had to die. He had to die because he had to pay for the, pen the penalty of our sins. He had to die because he loved every one of us. Uh, you know, he had to die to, you know, destroy the power of the devil. But the last thing he wanted them to know was he had to die because it was written that he would die. He had to rise again because it was written that the Messiah would rise again. The last thing Jesus did with his disciples was made sure that they had implicit, 100% confidence in the authority of the Scripture. And you know what? They were so convinced by it and persuaded by it that do you know what they did? They did the same thing as him. You go to the beginning, okay, right? They wait on the Holy Spirit then in Acts chapter 1, and then in Acts chapter 2, you see the first sermon given since Jesus had this prophecy seminar with them. And in this sermon, we don't hear all of the sermons, but we hear Peter's. And Peter stands up to preach, and he tells the people that they had, you know, crucified the Son of God. And they, he goes on to say that it was not possible that the grave should hold him. I want you to see this for yourself in the Bible. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Wow, what confidence, what boldness, what, how convincing. It was not even possible, he said, that he could be held in the grave. Why, Peter? Why was it not possible that Jesus could be held in the grave? What's the next word? What's the next word in verse 25? For. What's the word for mean? Because. It was not possible that Jesus could be held in the grave because David says concerning him. In other words, because it was or it is written. And then he goes on to quote from Psalm 16, where it says in verse 27, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, that's the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He points them to the very passage I'm sure that Jesus pointed them to in Luke chapter 24, as he was explaining to them the scriptures and how all the things in the Psalms and the prophets and in the law of Moses concerning himself had to be fulfilled. And you know what? It was so clear, and their confidence in the scriptures was so powerfully persuasive. The authority of the scriptures came across so astonishingly, just like in Jesus' teaching, that the people were cut to the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And 3,000 were converted that day. Let me tell you what. Jesus and the apostles had power in their message because they taught the Bible as of unquestionable authority. <clears throat> now I'm going to skip past this one. And I'm going to come to 2 Timothy 3.16. You know what it says, right? 2 Timothy 3.16? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, you need to understand something. The Bible is very clear that you don't really believe in the inspiration of God unless you believe in all Scripture being inspired by God. Otherwise, you don't really believe in the authority of the Word. You only believe in the authority of the Word if you believe what the Bible says, that all Scripture was given by inspiration of God. What did Jesus say in Matthew 4, 4? Uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what did we just read in Luke 24? What did, was it that Jesus said to those two sad disciples on the road to Emmaus? He said, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Why did he specify that? The reason is because they did believe in some of what the prophets have spoken. 
They believed that there would be a Messiah. They believed that one day he would be king. But they did not believe Isaiah 53. They did not believe in the suffering Messiah. They did not believe in the one that would have to die and raise again. And the reason that they were discouraged, the reason they lost heart, the reason they were full of doubt and perplexity was because they did not believe in all that the prophets had spoken. And it's the exact same, same thing that happens to us. Selected Messages, book 1, page 23, says this, both in the Battle Creek Tabernacle and in the college, the subject of inspiration has been taught. And finite men have taken it upon themselves to say that some things in the scriptures were inspired and some were not. When men venture to criticize the word of God, they venture on sacred holy ground and had better fear and tremble and hide their wisdom as foolishness. God sets no man to pronounce judgment on his word, selecting some things as inspired and discrediting others as uninspired. The testimonies have been treated in the same way, but God is not in this. Oh, don't even get me started on the spirit of prophecy. But this the same thing that happens is people believe some is inspired and some is not inspired. Sermons and Talks, Volume 1, page 65. I would have both my arms taken off at my shoulders before I would ever make the statement or set my judgment upon the Word of God as to what is inspired and what is not inspired. If we believe that parts of the Bible were inspired by God and other parts were not, such as they were, you know, the cultural bias affected the writer, the reader becomes the ultimate authority. Who determines if it's cultural bias or not? Who determines if it's trustworthy or not? I do. If we believe that some texts carry more authority than other texts, what we have is a canon within a canon. And the reader again becomes the ultimate authority. And I'll be sharing examples of this, where there are some who believe that, oh yeah, it's all inspired, but some of it is, they won't say it this way, but it's got greater weight. It's more inspired. It's more forward-looking. It's more rich. It's, it's more the ideal than that other passage. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe in verbal inspiration. Okay? So this is not why we believe it's all inspired, and we need to make sure we're clear about this. This view of inspiration teaches that the words were inspired. In other words, that they were essentially dictated by the Holy Spirit. Seventh-day Adventists believe in thought inspiration, in which the writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit and wrote using their own style and modes of expression. Look at how Ellen White describes this. It's beautiful. Selected Messages, Book 1, page 21. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. Nevertheless, the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. She says, the Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God, as a writer, is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God. But God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. You wonder, why is Paul write so differently than Peter? Because they're different people. If it was God dictating the words, everything would be exactly the same. But you see different styles, you know? Luke is always saying, we were not a little happy that, uh, and he's always not a little something. Um, everybody had their own idiosyncrasies. Paul, he wrote in ways that were hard to understand, Peter said, sometimes. God's way of writing is not on trial. However, God inspired the men and oversaw the development and writing and preservation of the Bible. But see, this is important because when people start saying, Aha, I see there's a, a, a paragraph 
in great controversy that came from such and such a different book. Ellen White didn't even write it herself. It came from somewhere else. When you understand that we do not believe in verbal inspiration where it's dictated, but thought inspiration, then you can understand that if something that you have already read perfectly captures what you saw and were revealed in vision, you can utilize it and it becomes inspired. Because it's fully in harmony with what, how God inspired the penman, in this case the penwoman. And by the way, don't think that Ellen White's the only one who did it. The Bible writers did it too. If we had time, we would go into all that. The, the doc, good Dr. Luke had his way of piecing together the accounts of some in order to put together something that God had inspired him to be accurate and true. So we need to understand. This is why, you know, you can read one gospel and it says, this is my beloved son. And then in another, it says it in slightly different words. And, and Ellen White has a beautiful uh, way of describing these concerns that some people have about the Bible. She says, some look to us gravely. You know what gravely means? Soberly. Very, <laughs> yes, thank you for all the synonyms coming from the front row. Seriously, that's right. Some look to us gravely and say, don't you think there might have been some, some mistake in the copyist or in the translators? Notice what she says. This is all probable. And the mind that is so narrow that it will hesitate and stumble over this possibility or probability would be just as ready to stumble over the mysteries of the inspired word because their feeble minds cannot see through the purposes of God. All the mistakes will not cause trouble to one's soul or cause any feet to stumble. She says, The Lord has preserved this holy book by His own miraculous power in its present shape, a chart or guidebook to the human family to show them the way to heaven. She says, the Bible is the most ancient and the most comprehensive history that men possess. It came fresh from the fountain of eternal truth, and through the ages, a divine hand has preserved its purity. God will not allow a, any little variance in the Bible that could in any way affect our understanding of truth. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to have slightly different perspectives and and. and the human writers may have a little bit different uh, looks at things. Let's talk about where we've gone tonight so that you're ready for the morning. Did, he, did we say 8 o'clock? Was it 7.30 or 8? It was 8. So you don't normally do 8 o'clock? Is that what I'm hearing? I got this, this clear sense that he was guilted into doing this because I'm the Sabbath school and personal ministry director and he needed to have Sabbath school. That normally he would have done it at 9, but since I'm here, we're doing it at 8. I think we should do it at 7. I mean, let's, if we're going to be serious, no, 8 o'clock will be good, and I think we'll have a wonderful Sabbath school too. I think that 8 o'clock is great because your mind is freshest in the morning. Amen. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, 7, <laughs> exactly. After tonight, it's going to be full tomorrow. All right, here's our summary of where we've gone tonight. Unity is based on the truth and the truth on God's word. If we want to deal with the issues we have in the church, we need to deal with the issues we have with the Bible. The Bible was written primarily for the common people. And by the way, the understanding of the common people, when aided by the Holy Spirit, accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. Everyone can understand the Bible if they have an honest heart and are willing to follow the truth. The Bible is fully inspired and therefore it is fully authoritative. The Bible does not contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And the writers were the ones who were inspired, removing all kinds of difficulties that people try to cavil at with the Bible. When you understand the writers were inspired, it was not dictated by God, but it is still because he oversaw the whole thing, inspired by God, and it is the Word of God. Did you follow that tonight? Okay, let me tell you where we're going. Tomorrow, Herman who? Yep, we're going to talk about hermeneutics tomorrow. 
and give you how to interpret the Bible so you come to a right conclusion. It's not that complicated. And then we're going to talk about some examples of false views that exist um, in Christianity and why they missed the mark based on what we just learned in terms of how we should interpret the Bible. So we're going to look at it and say, okay, well, how is it that, you know, people believe that when you die, you go straight to heaven? Well, what is the mistake they're making in, in the way that they're interpreting the Bible? And we're going to help you look at some examples. And then for sermon time, we're going to look at two specific examples. We're going to look at the issue of the Sabbath and why those who do not believe the Sabbath is any longer binding on Christians, the mistakes they make in their interpretation of the Bible. And we're going to go dive right into a present-day issue of women's ordination. And I'm going to talk to you just from my heart about the similarities that I see in that issue with the Sabbath and how that interpretation, uh, interpretive method is being used on both sides and how we see similar things happening on the issue of women's ordination. So um, it'll be a, a rich day, and I hope you'll bring your Bibles because we'll be spending time in the Bible. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time we have had in your word. Thank you for the patience and attention of these good people before me. I pray that you bless them, Lord, that you would give them that fresh revelation of your will through your word, that you would help us, Lord, to be fully persuaded by the authority of your word, that we would be astonished by the teaching of your word, that we would once more be energized to share your word. And Lord Jesus, that we would be united on your word. Please bless us, give us good rest this Sabbath evening, and bring us back for fresh bread in the morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.